Welcome back, storytellers. This is your host, Yin Chang. If you've been loving our show, I have a feeling you're going to love our essays and articles over on our website at 88cupsoftea.com. Our published pieces are written by some of your favorite authors, and be sure to check out our most recent article by Lori Morrison in partnership with our friends over at Vermont College of Fine Arts for our essay and podcast series of intimate stories from writers. Lori breaks down what happens when you fall out of love with your book and what to do to reignite that spark. Honestly, this essay could not have come at a more perfect time. And it was purely kismet that she wrote this fantastic piece during a much needed time. Lori even created a writing prompt to help you push past your writer's block. And you can download that prompt at the end of her article. Head over to 88cupsoftea.com to read Lori's piece and catch up on the rest of our collection. Now about our podcast episodes, if you've been enjoying our show, I have a super quick favor to ask. If you haven't yet hit the subscribe button and submitted a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to do so. Not only do I love reading your reviews, but your reviews also give new listeners a glimpse of what to expect from our episodes. And the more ratings and reviews that we get, I hear that it really helps with the algorithm to allow new listeners to find us and ultimately feel less alone in their creative journeys. Thank you to each and every one of you for taking the time. And thank you, thank you, thank you to those of you who already left a review. On that note, I want to shout out Brooke Gell, who wrote us a review that said, as a wannabe author, working through my first novel, I feel lost almost daily. The advice, recommendations, and encouragement found here have kept me going. I am so happy to have found 88 Cups of Tea. I am so touched you took the time to leave this awesome review. Thank you so very much. I'm so glad you found our community and that you've received all the love and support from our fellow storytellers. And this is honestly what I love most about 88 Cups of Tea is that our community always rises to the occasion. So I'm so glad that you were able to experience that. And thank you so much. I will see you around in our community. On the show today, we have award-winning author Marie Rakowski. Marie is the author of The Shadow Society, The Kronos Chronicles, and the New York Times bestselling Winner's Trilogy. Marie and I kick off our conversation chatting about how she discovered her love for storytelling and the important role her family played in inspiring her to craft stories and become a writer. She shares how writing her dissertation in college taught her how to structure a novel and inspired the idea behind her first novel. We then move on to discuss her newly published novel, The Midnight Lie, her experience crafting a queer romance and her heartwarming coming out story. She shares how hiring a freelance editor can help strengthen your novel before entering the querying process, how to craft persistent tension in your story, and later we discuss a writing strategy that can help you craft your novel while working full-time and the unique ways you can practice the art of storytelling away from the page. Before we jump right into our conversation, I just want to make sure I make a note that this interview was recorded on February 29th. So some topics may not be as timely, but there are so many things throughout Marie's conversation that's truly timeless. So enjoy the conversation and now let's jump right in.
Marie, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. You have so many admirers in our community who love you, who love your work, who love your writing. So I'm so happy this is happening. Why don't we just kick it off like we usually do with most podcast episodes and start all the way back, as far back as we can, your earliest memory of how you first fell in love with writing? Oh, that is really far back in time (laughs) because I think that like many writers... I fell in love with writing by falling in love with reading. And I have these really vivid memories of being in my elementary school library and sitting in between the stacks and reading Langston Hughes poems and books by Judy Bloom. And I think that I just loved reading so much that from a very early age, I wanted to be a writer. But I don't remember any moment. How about at home? Was it encouraged? I always find that a lot of who we are today as storytellers, it's been shaped a lot by how we were raised at home. How was it like with your parents, with your family members, siblings, if they were very much about even oral storytelling? What was that like? It's interesting that you mentioned oral storytelling because it is true that many members of my family are storytellers. Mm-hmm. My dad has this really rich, deep voice and he can tell a great story. And my grandmother too, when she was alive, would love to tell stories about growing up during the Great Depression. And I think that having younger brothers and a younger sister meant that I ended up telling a lot of stories to them too. So oral storytelling was very much a feature of my family. And I think that in terms of whether or not my writing was encouraged, I think it was, if only for the very basic reason that my mom had four kids and was a homemaker. And Mm -hmm. having a child who likes to read and write is great because they stay out of trouble and they're quiet. Mm -hmm. So I think that my mom was really happy that I spent my summers trekking back and forth to the library and just love to read and write. So you're the oldest. I am. So was there a lot of responsibility for you to help to take care of your younger siblings? Because I know in my household, that's expected. What was that like for you? And I know for me, it helped my storytelling because I would make up a lot of stories in my head and try to keep my sisters entertained (laughs) and like trying to win brownie points as a big sister. I think you were a much better big sister than I was. Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't trying to win brownie points. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, get the heck away from me. (laughs) I mean... I told my youngest brother that he was adopted. You know, I, some of the stories that I spun were definitely for my own amusement and not for their pleasure. And we were pretty close in age. There's only about two or three years between each of us. So we were more of a crew. I definitely remember taking care of my youngest brother changing his diapers because I was maybe seven and a half years Mm -hmm. older than him. So I did take care of him in a similar way. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting because he grew up to be in some ways the toughest of, (gasps) of us all. He joined the military after he did a tour in Afghanistan and other parts of the Middle East. He quit the military and became a cop. What? So he he actually, I know that this is not relevant to her. Everything is relevant. I'm telling you, it, okay. it all relates. Trust me. Well, the way it connects back is that I actually have written a novel for adults. It just sold and it won't come out until probably next year or maybe even January 2022. 
but it is in part a police procedural. And he was a big help in just telling me about how a murder case would unfold. He had me do ride-alongs with him in his squad car. So yeah, so he's been, he was really helpful actually as I wrote that book. Early congratulations about this. I was reading about your bio and you grew up in many different places. You grew up in Illinois and then you also lived in Moscow, Prague and Paris. Were you moving around as a whole crew? These moves were not made with my family, with my parents. This is me. I mean, I grew up in Illinois. We never moved. We always stayed in the same town. My sister lives in that same town. My brother lived there for a while and now lives maybe half an hour away. My other brother lives a half an hour away. So everybody just stayed in Illinois. And I left. I you know, I went to college and it was after I graduated from college that I moved to Moscow and then moved to Prague, then moved to Boston to go to graduate school. And during my last year of graduate school, had a fellowship to live in London, which I didn't mention in my bio, but I did live there for a while. And then I spent a year in Paris with my children when they were very small. What brought you to each of these places? What was that moment that you're like, okay, that's it. I'm booking the flight. Well, what brought me to Moscow, and this was in 1999, and so it was quite a while ago, and it's interesting to look back at that period because it was during the time when Vladimir Putin was consolidating power. Mm. He was a new leader in the country. So it's very interesting to think about where he was then and where he is now. I have no idea how Moscow has changed since I haven't been back there since Mm -hmm. 99. But I moved there because I was in love with this guy and he wanted to move to Russia. He studied Russian and I thought I will go there too. And so I worked really hard over one summer to save up money and move there. And the relationship was a disaster. It was <laughs> it was not a great emotional move, but still it was fascinating to live in Moscow, to experience the culture there, to learn a new language. It was very different than the rest of Europe. And after maybe a few months, mostly because the relationship went south, Mm -hmm. I decided to move to Prague where I had some relatives because my grandmother was Czech. Mm -hmm. So we had some distant relatives there and I had been there before to meet them. So I moved there and I got on my feet and got a job teaching English Prague was the setting of my first novel, actually, my book for middle grade readers, The Cabinet of Wonders, though I didn't start writing that book until well after many years later when I was in graduate school. I mentioned that my last year I had a fellowship to live and research in London. And so that was what brought me to that city. Essentially, I wanted to do archival research in the British Library and the Bodleian and other collections in England because I was studying drama from the time of Shakespeare. And so it was during my year in London, which was a very lonely year, socially speaking. Mm. I had a couple of friends there, but my life essentially revolved around the British library. I would wake up, I'd turn on the gas stove and have 
breakfast, sitting in front of it and go to the library, research all day, come home, eat weirdly flavored potato chips, (laughs) which England (laughs) has many of. And essentially my whole day was spent at the British library, which was only a couple blocks away from my apartment. And it was during that time that I had the idea for what became my first novel. I wasn't there to write my novel. I was there to finish my dissertation. And so I did do that. I did tell myself, okay, Marie, you must finish your dissertation first. Do that, get your degree, and then write the book, which is what I ended up doing. Do you remember that exact moment where you just had that light bulb moment of inspiration for how you were able to get that story idea and then fully execute on it? Well, in fact, when I went to Prague the first time, my cousin David took me to see the clock that's in the oldest part of the city. It's it's quite a famous clock because of its beauty. It's an astrological yeah. clock. And he told me that the legend of the clock was that the man who commissioned it had the eyes of the man who made it gouged out so that he could never build <gasps> another clock like it again. And I was drawn to this story in part because my mother has struggled with blindness throughout almost all of her life. She went blind when she was about eight years old and then has had a series of surgeries over the years to improve her sight. And she can see now, though not very well. And I suppose that I was interested in what it must have been like for the family of this clockmaker. Mm. And since I was interested in writing a fantasy novel, it came to me in thinking about what the family's reaction to this horrible act would have been like. It occurred to me, well, what if the clockmaker's daughter knew that the eyes had been taken out, but that they had been inspelled? And what if she decided to run away to Prague? because she's living in the countryside in this book, to steal her father's eyes back. Can you please share a bit about how your first novel came about? It was really just that I had a lot of time to myself to think. And since I was already working on a dissertation, which is essentially one big story, when you write a dissertation, you are writing a book. It's an academic book, but you are telling a certain kind of story about how you understand literature as you're writing it. And so I had already begun to have a feel for how to structure a book. And I had a lot of time to think. And I just happened to be in the British Library one day when I was remembering my time in Prague and when I began to think about that clock and think about the clockmaker. And and then I just had the idea and I wrote maybe a few chapters of it in the library and decided this could be a book. I had a conversation with my friend, Neil Mukherjee, who's a writer of really gorgeous adult literary novels. I told him the idea for the book and he said, Marie, drop everything, quit graduate school and write that book right now. Oh my God. I did not listen to him totally. I did not <laughs> drop my dissertation. I did not quit graduate school. I did 
the things I needed to do. But then I did write that novel and I'm not so sure that I would have written it if he hadn't been so enthusiastic. Thank you so much for getting into that with us and really breaking it down and unpacking it. Do you mind sharing one of the most challenging times that you've gone through and how you were able to get through that? I suppose a great challenge was, I think, related to the book that's coming out next week on March 3rd, The Midnight Lie. And that has to do, in terms of my personal life, with coming out as queer and feeling that I wanted to write a romance that was a queer romance and also feeling very nervous about it, I suppose, in part because I came out relatively late in life. I'll be turning 43, actually, two days after my book is released. (gasps) Happy early birthday. Thank you. Thank you. So I suppose writing The Midnight Lie was very personal for me because I was writing a romance that I felt really connected to. And because I want people to like any book that I write, of course, but I think I care more about people liking this one maybe than any other book Mm. because I, on some level, I worry that if they don't like it, they don't like me. And maybe that's a too personal thing to admit. And actually, maybe that's what writers feel all the time to some degree. Yeah. Marie, thank you for sharing that with me. I have a girlfriend of over five years now. That's wonderful. Thank you. And when I did come out, it was interesting because it didn't even feel like it was coming out. It just felt like it was just a part of who I was becoming or who I was realizing I was. I'm very happy and I hate to say the word lucky, but I've been told I'm very lucky that my family is incredibly accepting after like the first few days of battle and like World War Three. Things are amazing right now and they could not be more supportive, more loving. They're in love with my girlfriend. They're like, girl, why the hell didn't you find her sooner? I'm like, God, way better than any of the guys that you dated. So I think this really speaks so closely and resonates so much with me when you said that you came out a little bit later in life. What was that like with your children and also family members? Because I just had to deal with the older generation. The younger generation I dealt with were my little sisters, but they always had my back. And also I'm lucky they're like vice president of the LGBTQ club in school. You know what I mean? So they were like my little soldiers and like going to war with me. And many thanks to them, my family has accepted me fully. So what was that like for you? If you don't mind me asking, I just, this feels so close to home for me. I'm so happy for you that you have found love and that your parents love your girlfriend too. And I think you are lucky. I am lucky too in that my parents have been really supportive. Amazing. My mother was just very blasé about it when I told her. She said, well, your father won't be surprised. What? Wait, are you serious? I know. You know, I have this memory of being in college and driving home with my dad. He's just driving me home to spend time with our family. And we were listening to Ani DeFranco because I put her on. And I just said, yeah, a lot of girls who like girls like Ani DeFranco. And he was just really quiet. And then he said, you know, if you were gay, it would be okay. What? And I said, I'm not gay. 
<laughs> and even though I put Ani DeFranco on for a reason, it was a way to bring up exactly what I brought up. I did have crushes on girls. And even though I completely denied it at the time, and maybe I was 20 years old then, nonetheless, the fact that he said that yeah. stayed with me for years. And so even though I was nervous about telling him and my mother, I also felt secure because my father had told me it would be okay. And he had told me that years ago. Wow. And he's not somebody who breaks his promises or changes his mind. And so I was really lucky in that sense. I identify as queer. I think that that is the word that feels most comfortable to me. Mm -hmm. But I think my parents would have felt more comfortable with the term bisexual. <laughs> um, parents, when they discover that their children are different or have a different facet to them that they hadn't seen before, parents quickly want to get control of the situation. Yeah. And having a term to use and a term that they feel comfortable with and is familiar to them is maybe one of the first things that they, they reach for. And in terms of my children, I am lucky that we live in New York, which yes. is a very open kind of society towards people of difference. And telling them that I had a girlfriend was strange for them only in the sense that my girlfriend was not their father. Mm. It wasn't about my sexuality, or at least my sexuality didn't seem to cause any concern or worry or even much thought. And they love my girlfriend. So I think that it was helpful that the person that I'm with is somebody that they also feel really close to. Marie, you got me tearing up. You know that? Oh. I've been tearing since the time you said your dad said, you know, if you're gay, it's okay. Thank you, Marie. You just made my entire weekend by sharing that story. You have no idea. And I know for anyone that's listening who's going through the same thing, it fills them with hope and definitely feeling a bit less lonely. So thank you for that. Oh my of course. Gosh. Of I course. love that so much. Marie, you're so wonderful. Okay. Do you mind if we are able to segue into listener questions because they have great craft questions? So the first one we've got, Tracy Kenworth. She says, I wonder if Marie could discuss whether you should send your book to an editor before sending it out on queries. Would it improve your odds? What I would want to know is what she means by an editor. Is she thinking of a freelance editor? I do know there are those editors who provide services mm -hmm. where you can go through and edit and revise and make notes. So I believe that's what she's talking about. Okay. That's not something that I did myself, but I do have friends who are already professional published writers who do sometimes hire freelance editors because they um, want another voice in addition to their own official editor or they have some other interests that they feel a freelance editor can answer. So freelance editors can be really helpful. And while I myself did not take advantage of one before querying agents, I can see how that could be really useful. Okay. Thank you so much. Next question, Tiffany Smith. I loved The Winner's Curse. The characters and pacing were phenomenal, which led, of course, meant great tension. How do you write such great tension into your stories? What do you do during revisions to help improve pacing and tension? 
So I think that there are many different ways of crafting tension. And something that I try to bear in mind is the advice of Elizabeth George, who's a crime writer. And she said that the way to keep a plot moving, which is connected to tension, the way to build tension is to make certain while you're writing the book that you are asking a question, that there is a question that readers will want to know the answer to. And that if you as the writer are going to answer that question at some point in the book, which you must because you can't leave questions just dangling, right? I mean, take, for example, The Hunger Games, which people think of as, I think, a very tension-filled novel. In the beginning, you know that The Hunger Games exists, that there's going to be a drawing, the reaping that will happen. And so the question in the beginning is, who will be chosen, right? Mm -hmm. And then Suzanne Collins answers that for the reader. The person chosen is prim. And then that begets another question, which is what will happen then? What will Katniss do? And she volunteers. And then that begets another question, which is, will she survive? How will she survive? So what Suzanne Collins does very brilliantly is exactly what Elizabeth George advises, which is that you as the writer should lay down a question. And if you answer it as you must, you also need to lay down another question in its place. Mm. And that will keep the tension going. This reminds me of improv. Are you familiar with improv where they're like, never say no, always say yes and in response to just continue it? I definitely have heard of the idea of saying yes and, but I have never done improv. I would be so terrible at it. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, nope, I refuse to speak. (laughs) Yes. I would not be yes anding. I would be no budding. (laughs) This is awesome. Okay. So next we have Alexandra Petrikios. She said, yes, so exciting. All caps. I'd be curious to hear Marie's opinion on the idea of real world cultural inspiration in YA fantasy, if possible. It feels like we see broad trends in the genre where a certain cultural template is popular for a time. Example, medieval England, Russian folklore, etc. Does she think writers, when basing their fantasy worlds on a real-world one, should be mindful of cultural appropriation? If so, where's the line? Should we primarily stay in our own cultural lanes, or does doing thorough research, even if you don't share an ancestral or personal link to a real-world culture, to protect against the risk you're using someone else's culture as a superficial decorative feature in your own work. Sorry, that's terribly wordy, but hopefully captures the gist. FYI, Alexandra, beautifully put. It is a great question. And I think that you can tell just from the nature of the question and how many questions are really packed into the, the single one that it's a complicated issue. I mean, mm-hmm. in some ways, Alexandra has to ask a lot of questions because it's not a simple yes or no answer. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to see if I can try to remember all the little implicit questions that are in it. One was, should you be mindful of cultural appropriation? Mm-hmm. I think in that case, there is a clear answer. Yes you should be mindful of cultural appropriation. Cultural appropriation is not something that we want to do. And in order to avoid it, I think that it's helpful if you as a writer are not using 
the culture to tell your story, but that you have a very specific reason for why your story must be based in that culture. Mm. It must be meaningful to you. It must be meaningful to your story. I don't think that people should be willy nilly setting their stories. (laughs) Random cultures that are not their own because the cultures look, and I'm going to use a word that's a problematic one, knowing so and knowing that your audience knows it, because the cultural seems exotic or seems more fascinating than the culture that they grew up in. I think that we don't want to see writers using other cultures. Then there's the, the other question of, can you do it if you do enough research? And I think that that really depends. It depends on whether you do it well. Um, Ultimately, you will be judged on the product that you write. I'm thinking now of Caitlin Greenidge's article, her op-ed in the New York Times. This came out quite a few years ago, even before the more recent literary scandals of January 2020. This article by Caitlin Greenidge came out after Lionel Shriver appeared at an Australian writers conference wearing a sombrero and arguing that writers should be able to write whatever they want and that to try to limit a writer with censorship. And Caitlin Greenidge's response was, no, we're not here to censor you. But if you're not going to stay in your lane, if you're Mm going to write outside of your culture, Mm -hmm. expect that you will be judged for it. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily saying expect that you're going to be punished, but expect that people are going to read your book and will evaluate whether you've done it well or not. Yes. I think that there is a much greater risk that if you're writing outside of your culture, that you're going to get representation wrong. And bad representation of underrepresented cultures and people is something I think we don't want in literature. So I don't have a simple answer. And I think that there are also other people who can better answer that question. Mm. I mean, I am a queer writer writing a queer book for queer people, also for straight people. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, I might have a window into this question, but I'm also a white writer. Mm. And so I think that there are many writers of color who have spoken very eloquently to this issue. Caitlin Greenidge, also Alexander Chi, mm. who wrote this. I don't know if it was a blog or if it was just something that he wrote on Twitter. He wrote a series of questions that you should ask yourself if you're planning on writing outside your culture. I would recommend that Alexandra look at what they've had to say. Mm -hmm. And if Alexandra is a YA writer, Mm -hmm. look at the material coming out of We Need Diverse Books, which is a wonderful not-for-profit organization that seeks to diversify the publishing industry, both in terms of the books that are being written, but also in terms of the people who are working in the ranks of publishing as, as editors, editorial assistants, publicists, et cetera. And one final thing that I would want to say to this question is that I think Alexander and everybody should be reading books by amazing writers of color in YA, mm. people like Renee Adia, Danielle yes. Clayton, Emily XR Pan, Kat Cho, Patrice Caldwell, Sona Chiraputra. Yes. I mean, I could go on and on, but there's such amazing talent and so many good books being written. And I think that the people that Alexander should be reading are people like them. 
Thank you for answering this so thoroughly. And shout out to Alexandra. I know this is probably not the easiest question to ask. So thank you also for asking this and giving us a chance to discuss and also to share this with a lot of other listeners who I know probably are wondering the same thing. So thank you for asking this question as well. Marie, you're awesome. I'm going to wrap it up with the regular rapid fire questions that we have and just shoot out anything off the top of your head when I say real talk, money, finances, surviving as a writer, artist from your own experiences you could share with our listeners? Well, I mean, I'm really lucky in that I'm a teacher. I'm a professor of English Mm -hmm. literature. So I get to have a lot of independent time to write during the summers and the holidays. And my writing is also considered part of my job. So that is a pretty sweet deal. And I don't know how easy it is to replicate that. But I do know that a lot of writers would have written their books in little bursts. If you read, for example, Stephen King's on writing, which Mm. which is a wonderful mix of memoir and a book on the craft of writing, you'll learn that he wrote his first novel, Carrie, while being a high school teacher and while living in a trailer with his (gasps) wife and small children. And he essentially wrote... Carrie in the laundry, the tiny, tiny laundry room of his trailer, Mm. which had an accordion door that he would shut. And it was really important to him to be able to write in a room where he could shut the door, no matter how tiny it was. And writing even just in small bursts in whatever time that he could find. So I think that even if money is tight, even if time is tight, Just try to write a little bit every day. Even if you only have 15 minutes, you can cobble that together into a book. If you were a mentor, which a lot of our listeners look up to you like a mentor, what is one advice you'd share or like the best advice you've ever received? Probably in terms of writing, one of the best pieces of advice that I got was from one of my dissertation advisors, whose name is Jim Shapiro. He's a professor at Columbia. I went to Harvard University, but I spent two years doing an exchange program at Columbia. And Jim was really kind to take me on as his advisee. And he's a Shakespearean and a wonderful person. And At some point, we were talking about my dissertation. He said, you're just telling a story. People just want to hear a good story. And I know that maybe that doesn't seem like very helpful advice because it's easier said than done to write a good story. But for me, that was helpful because it took a task that seemed hugely daunting, which is essentially writing a book and brought it down to a simple fundamental desire that most humans have, which is just to hear a narrative that touches them in some way. And so one thing that you can do is even if you can't write, you can be conscious of how you take the personal details of your day and share it with other people. Mm. My girlfriend and I, we spent a lot of time just talking about our days, describing people, describing little moments that seem to mean very little, like interactions with people on the subway or something that my kids said. And so we're constantly telling each other little stories. And I think that that's something that 
writers, even if they feel like they don't have time to put pen to paper or fingers to the keyboard, can still practice the art of storytelling. Let's wrap it up with, if there's any other books, please do share. I'm going to go with my most recent read. I'm in the middle of reading Girl, Woman, Other, which won The Man Booker by Bernadine Evaristo. And it's an amazing collection of portraits of Black women in England. And it's just beautiful and funny and so unlike anything I've read before. So I'm halfway through that and loving it. I've also just received Patrice Caldwell's edited collection, A Phoenix First Must Burn. And I'm really excited to sink my teeth into that one. Those are two books on my TBR or currently reading shelf. In terms of books on the craft of writing, George Orwell's The Politics of the English Language is a wonderful essay to read. George Saunders has done YouTube videos on writing, and he is just a master at the short story. I would recommend that. Everybody knows Anne Lamont's Bird by Bird. Yes. And I would also say Francine Prose's Reading Like a Writer is great. And I love James Woods's How Fiction Works, which I think is I mean, I didn't even really know what the close third person was until I read that book. So I found it really helpful for me to both identify what famous writers are doing and to think about how I could use it for my own work. Please let everyone know where they can find you online. Well, you can go to marierutkowski.com to see some of the events that I'll be doing mostly this month for the publication of The Midnight Lie. I'm also on Twitter under the name Marie Rutkowski, all one word, and on Instagram. Again, Marie Rutkowski, all one word. And that wraps up my conversation with Marie Rutkowski. Marie, thank you for an inspiring and heartwarming conversation. You've sparked so much inspiration for me and I'm sure for all of our listeners. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in as always. Please be sure to stop by and say hi to Marie on Twitter and Instagram at Marie Rutkowski. To find all the resources and books mentioned in Marie's episode, along with tweetable quotes and the timestamps of highlights throughout our entire conversation, head on over to her show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash Marie Rutkowski. If you're looking for a super intimate space where you can meet fellow storytellers and experience what it's like to be a part of our 88 Cups of Tea community, come hang out with us in our private Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 Cups of Tea. We check in with each other on the daily and have weekly threads where you can update each other about your work in progress and your huge wins for the week along with recommendations for books and TV shows. And there's a whole ton of GIFs in there. So if those things bring a smile on your face right now, you need to come hang out with us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. Have a super productive week and I'll catch you in our next episode.